And he is much loved and respected by Christian and pagan alike. The governor is not keen on having him killed. Simply swear by Caesar, he pled. And to this Roman, it is a simple matter. It doesn't really matter what religion Polycarp is. The Roman Empire is an amazingly diverse and tolerant place. A place of pretty much universal religious freedom. Except that each adult man and woman is prepared to burn a pinch of incense by way of offering to a statue of Caesar and to confess with his mouth, Caesar is Lord, or Caesar is divine, or Caesar, son of God. No one could object to that. It simply means that above and beyond all other religious affiliations and cultural identity markers, you had declared your loyalty to Caesar as emperor. And this idea to the vast majority of people in the ancient world was both benign and unobjectionable. If, if you live with a worldview that includes many, many, many gods and goddesses, adding just one is, is entirely reasonable. But for some inscrutable reason, Christians refuse to do this. Simply swear by Caesar, the governor pled, wanting to be able simply to go home and to send the man home as well. I am a Christian, replied Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. If you want to know what that is, set a day and listen. Persuade the people, answered the governor, referring to the crowd surrounding them, for they were in an arena with a crowd hungry for entertainment and lions hungry to be fed. I would explain to you, but not to them, he replied. Then I'll throw you to the beasts. Bring on your beasts. If you scorn the beasts, I'll have you burned. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the everlasting fire that is prepared for the wicked. The governor appealed to the crowd. Polycarp says he is a Christian. This is the teacher of Asia, they shouted, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods. And so Polycarp was burned at the stake. Polycarp blessing the father that he'd considered him worthy of this honor and praying that the laying down of his life would be an acceptable sacrifice in his Lord's eyes. Uh, in, fact, in fact, somehow uh, the flames uh, didn't manage to kill him. So after a while, they had to stab him to death. Well, uh, today we continue a series of six sermons looking at uh, the early history of the church. This is talk number four out of a total, the Lord willing, of six talks altogether. The birth of Catholic Christianity, A.D. 90 to 312. And today we'll be thinking about the phenomenon of persecution. Now, <clears throat> within the Roman Empire, you were allowed to be Jewish. It was a legal religion. 
and Jews, they didn't have to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar because the Romans knew from bitter experience that if you even suggested that to the Jews, the sky would fall in and the whole thing would rapidly turn into this awful bloodbath, to put that from a Roman point of view. Better just to leave them to themselves. And in the middle of the first century, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the spread of the Christian faith was considered to be an entirely Jewish matter. Jews arguing and debating amongst themselves as to whether or not Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And so then, as perhaps you've already noticed, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the New Testament, overwhelmingly, when it talks about persecution, it has Jewish persecution of Christians in view. And during those times, with respect to Rome, Christians were considered to be Jews. But come the middle of the first century, and that began to change. The number of Gentile converts to Christianity made it difficult to reconcile this new movement, this new message, at least at a social level, with Judaism. No, this did seem to be something entirely new. And also, the the Jewish establishment distanced themselves at every opportunity from this new movement. They said, no, they're not with us. And the Christians too, whether from Jewish or from Gentile background, they also wanted to distance themselves from Judaism, which was, at that time, quickly becoming more and more militarily nationalistic on a freeway for violent confrontation with Rome. No, they wanted to distance themselves from that too. So Christians were out there by themselves, not covered by Judaism, an illegal religion. And so the era that we're looking at, AD 90 to 312, is the age of persecution in our collective memory, the age of the martyrs. And if we think about this period of history at all, we tend to imagine it as a time of peace-filled and prayerful Christian martyrs dressed in white, being circled by lions or gladiators. However, in terms of thinking about persecution, I guess the first thing to note is that... um, In the period of time that we're looking at, in most places, Christians were able to fellowship together with reasonable safety. They were discreet in their gatherings rather than secretive. Persecution was episodic and sporadic. Occasional outbreaks of persecution here and there with only a few instances of systematic empire-wide persecution. And and these persecutions, by and large, were relatively short-lived. A a matter of two or three years, not not, not decades. Unofficially, why did this persecution happen at all? Well, unofficially, Christians often found themselves unpopular with their neighbors. You, You wouldn't want to overstress that. Individual Christians were often highly respected and revered by their pagan neighbors, having enormous respect for their selfless love directed both to brothers and sisters in the faith as well as to outsiders and non-believers. But if, if you want two words to explain this general unpopularity of Christians, here are two words, antisocial atheists. 
Christians were considered antisocial atheists. Antisocial. Social life, cultural life in the Roman Empire revolved around temple worship and the worship of the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. Pagan temple worship was where you socialized. It was where you had a party. It was where you had a barbecue. It was where you ate roasted meat, danced and got drunk. You had fun also by going to the arena and watching people get killed. Hospitals and schools were filled with prayers and dedications to pagan deities. So if you were a Christian, you just simply couldn't participate in the fundamental social activities of the community around you. You were self-declared social outcasts. And in their self-imposed social isolation, there sprung up confusion about what it was that Christians actually did when they got together. People heard rumors about love feasts and excessive kissing, about cannibalism and atheism, and they imagined the worst. Love feasts, they heard about them. What were they? Well, literally, agape meals. They were the shared community meal that revolved around Holy Communion. 1 Corinthians 11 describes a love feast, an agape meal, in the Corinthian church. And kissing, well, actually, yeah, Paul exhorts in many of his letters, he exhorts Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss, a, a radically countercultural way of expressing acceptance and equality. In the ancient world, you, you only greeted immediate family or social equals with a kiss. For, for a slave master to greet one of his own slaves with a kiss because it was church, was a powerful symbol of equality before God. But what about cannibalism? Well, people heard rumors of eating flesh and drinking blood. They'd heard about Holy Communion and misunderstood. The fact also that Christians routinely rescued babies that had been left uh, to, to be exposed to death. It's a very common form of, of family planning, so to speak. You had the baby, but you just left it out in the field to die, especially if it was a girl. Um, uh, but Christians gathered these babies and, and, and rescued them. And that provoked people's imaginations as to what exactly were they doing with them. And atheism, atheists, it's a confusing word to us because... To us, an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God, it doesn't believe in his existence, or indeed somebody who believes that there is no God. But Christians worshipped an invisible God without bowing down to images or statues or idols, an extremely foreign idea to Greco-Romans, almost incomprehensible. And also the Christians said that idols were no gods at all. They denounced idols and the manufacturing of idols, which happened to be very big business in certain places. And that was, in most people's minds, the same as being anti-religion, anti-piety, anti-God, the destroyers of gods, desecrators of the ancient traditions and legends that had shaped Roman culture and that had made Rome great. 
And the fact also that Christians lived by such very different values meant that they had to stand out. The Bible anticipates this, all of this in, in many places. For example, Peter writes, Do not live the rest of your earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their recklessness, in their, in their wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Well, uh, this uh, general unpopularity made Christians an easy scapegoat when things went wrong. And one such time was June, AD 64. The city of Rome caught fire a densely packed city of mostly multi-story wooden buildings, and over six days and seven nights, 10 of the 14 sections of that city, the 14 districts, 10 out of 14, were destroyed. The Emperor Nero was blamed as the culprit. Now, historians know that he was innocent of the charge, and in fact, he did a lot to help. He did a lot to, to ameliorate the suffering but his well-known greed for land within the capital city for the expansion of his palaces and projects gave credence to the rumors. And the fact that he was a frivolous emperor also meant that he had many enemies. So a rumor spread. Nero himself started the fire, and in order to deflect blame, he said that, no, it was the Christians. They were to blame. And he organized the first of the Roman mass persecutions of Christians. And amongst those who died were both Peter and Paul, both of whom were in Rome at that time. Um, Paul was uh, beheaded, a dignified and quick execution for someone who was a Roman citizen. Peter, not being a Roman citizen, was crucified. According to church tradition, Peter protested, saying that he was not worthy to die the same death as his Lord and Savior. And in response, the soldiers crucified him upside down. No one knows for sure if that story is true. It could be an embellishment. But it does sound an awful lot like Peter. Negotiating to the end. Nero had Christians killed in a variety of horrific ways, anticipated to entertain most infamously, he had Christians used as human torches, lighting the parks and gardens of Rome at night. In, in actual fact, this backfired on Nero in terms of his own popularity. The Roman historian Tacitus, writing soon afterwards, said, All of this aroused the mercy of the people, even though the Christians deserved exemplary punishment. For it was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. So then, Christians seen as antisocial atheists, at least unofficially. Official Roman policy towards Christians was set early, and we have an amazing window into that Roman policy by way of a set of letters, letters that passed backwards and forwards between a man named Pliny the Younger and the emperor of his day, Trajan. Pliny the Younger served as an imperial magistrate, a judge in Bithynia, in modern-day Turkey. And in a series of letters 
from the year uh, AD um, 113, Pliny writes to Emperor Trajan seeking his advice about what to do about these Christians. And he writes, The plan which I have adopted in the case of those Christians who have been brought before me is that I ask them whether they are Christians. If they say yes, I repeat the question a second and a third time, warning them of the penalties it entails. And if they still persist, I order them to be taken away to prison. For I do not doubt that whatever the character of the crime which uh, uh, may be that they confess, their uh, pertinacity and their inflexible obstinacy certainly ought to be punished. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians and called upon the gods in the usual formula, reciting the words after me, those who offered incense and wine before your image, which I had given orders to be brought forward for this purpose, together with the statues of the deities, all such I considered should be discharged, especially as they cursed the name of Christ, which, it is said, those who are really Christians cannot be induced to do. Others whose names were given to me by an informer first said that they were Christians and afterwards denied it, declaring that they had been but were so no longer. Some of them had, having recanted many years before, and more than once so long as 20 years back. They all worshipped your image and the statue of the deities and cursed the name of Christ. But they declared that the sum of their guilt or their error only amounted to this, that on a stated day they had been accustomed to meet before daybreak and to recite a hymn among themselves to Christ as though he were a god, and that so far from binding themselves by oath to commit some crime, no, their oath was to abstain from crime, to abstain from theft, robbery, adultery, and from breach of faith, and to do not deny trust money placed in their keeping when called to deliver it. When this ceremony was concluded, it had been their custom to depart and meet again to take food. But it was of no special character and quite harmless. And they had ceased this practice after the edict in which, in accordance with your orders, I had forbidden all political societies. I thought it the more necessary, therefore, to find out what truth there was in these statements by submitting two women, who, who were called deaconesses, to the torture. Well, I found nothing but a debased superstition carried to great lengths. What today we'd call theology. So I postponed my examination and immediately consulted you. Emperor Trajan to Pliny. You have adopted the proper course, my dear Pliny, in examining into the cases of those who have been denounced to you as Christians for no hard and fast rule can be laid down to meet a question of such wide extent. The Christians are not to be hunted out. If they are brought before you and the offense is proved, they are to be punished. He means killed. But this with reservation, that if anyone denies that he is a Christian and makes it clear that he is not by offering prayers to our deities, then he is to be pardoned because of his recantation, however suspicious 
his past conduct may have been. And for most of the 222 years that we're looking at, official policy was precisely that. Don't ask, don't tell. But if it comes to light that someone is a Christian, they must be given opportunity to recant. If they don't, then that's all the reason you need to kill them. Stubbornness. From an official perspective, stubbornness is the key word. Uh, only very recently, in, in terms of human history, only very recently has it been considered legitimate for people to have their own opinion in possible variance to their master's opinion and for a person to be allowed to obey the dictates of their own conscience. That's very recent stuff, historically. But those Christians were people who would rather die than disobey their own conscience. And that was absolutely alien to their neighbors. Cultural values that would take at least another 1,700 years to become anything like mainstream. And yet fundamental to liberal democracy. The, the, the new security laws in Hong Kong, uh, uh, of course, reflect the fact that in Chinese society, it is not acceptable for an individual citizen to hold independently their own political views, in variance possibly to their master. That would be stubbornness. And it is completely unacceptable for someone to be motivated by conscience. That smacks of Western individualism. Those values, indeed, are meaningless in many non-Western cultures. Remember that word, stubbornness. Christians were guilty of stubbornness, and that was reason enough to kill them. The other word to remember with respect to the official response to Christianity is superstition. The fiercest waves of persecution which tended to be in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries, were always connected with conservative, politically conservative emperors who were otherwise considered to be intelligent and moderate. But in those years, in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries, so much was going wrong in the Roman emperor and barbarians on the northern and eastern frontiers posing terrible external threat, incursions, civil wars internally, and strife, famines, plagues, economic downturn. From a Greco-Roman mindset, why wasn't Rome as great as Rome used to be? Let's make Rome great again. That's all we have to do. And they wore little red baseball caps with let's make Rome great. Only baseball hadn't been invented yet, nor had baseball caps. But they would have. Let's make Rome great again. Yeah, let's do that. How do we do that? Well, the gods have abandoned us because we have abandoned them. Let's make good old-fashioned Roman values compulsory by making good old-fashioned Roman religion compulsory. A return to traditional values, that'll solve all our problems. Back to the old superstitions, that is to say the old beliefs, the myths, the legends, and the old superstitious practices. And 
these policies, they weren't designed specifically to persecute Christians. That was just incidental because, of course, they would refuse to follow. But it led to persecution and intense empire-wide persecutions. So unofficially, anti-social atheists. Officially, stubborn refusers of the superstitions. And all of this, some 222 years or so of on-again, off-again persecution, of course, this had an enormous, incalculable, inestimable effect on both the church and also on the world. We cannot even begin to imagine the scale of the effect that these persecutions had. With respect to the world, uh, who witnessed this testimony, it had not seen this kind of thing before. What, what today we would call nonviolent resistance. Nonviolent, they did not fight back. Yet resistance, they stubbornly refused to change their minds. They were, of course, used to seeing violent resistance, very well used to seeing that, or capitulation in the face of violence. But nonviolent resistance was something entirely new and completely revolutionary. And, of course, vast numbers of people came to faith in Christ in response to this testimony. As Tertullian uh, uh, put it, uh, late in this time period, a, a Christian uh, writer and thinker, thinker, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. People came to faith in Christ in those arenas, watching Christians being killed. And people came to faith in Christ. You kill one Christian, another ten spring up in his absence. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. An enormous effect on the world. With respect to the church, how did our forebears in the faith, our brothers and sisters in Christ, how did they react in response to all of this? Well, obviously, there was a vast number of different reactions, but I reckon we can probably say that in general, they developed a biblical theology of martyrdom that neither glorified it unduly nor ran from it in denial. Later generations would look back on this age as the age of heroes, as an age of saints. But they didn't think about martyrdom in that way. They didn't line up for martyrdom. Many did what they could to avoid it. When they needed to flee, by and large, they fled. But they also had a sense of the fact that sometimes it was unavoidable. Sometimes it was necessary. Sometimes you couldn't escape it. And when you couldn't flee, or indeed, of course, there would be the time when you just had to tell the truth in response to a direct question. As in our gospel reading this morning, they understood that dying for their testimony could be Christ's call on their life, as was the case for Peter, but not for another. It wasn't the case for John. Uh, Peter was to die a martyr's death. J John was to live on and not go that way. With respect to the one for whom it was God's will that they die a violent death, like James in Acts chapter 12, they knew that God would give that person strength. 
And with respect to the one for whom it wasn't God's will, like Peter in that same chapter, his time hadn't yet come, the Lord would somehow open the gates of the prison. Somehow they would be led to safety. Either way, you just trust God. But maybe better than us, they understood that either way, either way, it will cost you your life to follow Jesus. You might spend your life for Christ in one way or the other. But either way, there is no way to follow Christ except by laying down your life for him. In contrast, many churches today all over the world sell Christianity as a lifestyle accessory, as something that will enable you to achieve your full potential as something to do with flourishing and fulfillment and happiness and success, spiritual principles to prosperity and health. But the Christians of the early church would have seen straight through that. No, in a nutshell, and the lesson for today from history and from Scripture is that to follow Jesus is to follow him to the cross. Whether God calls you or I to martyrdom or not, it's going to cost us everything. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. The Lord be with you.